this is something I noticed when I went to conferences. If, if you look at a conference, there's always this moment where someone who's really well-known is speaking and they stop speaking. And then basically everyone gets up and goes to talk to them. And it's something I noticed was before the person came on to speak, they were usually with one or two, three people that were probably from their team or someone they respect. And you could tell they had a close relationship because you can tell by body language. And then when everyone rushes that person, the other person's just standing off to that side and no one's talking to them. Wow. Right? A, a great example actually would be, I remember going to a conference with Andrew Warner and or we were at the same conference and he spoke and then everyone rushed him. And I was just like kind of like standing off to the side and stuff and not doing anything. And if people came and talked to me, they probably have a stronger end to get to Andrew than just by pitching him directly because there's a, there they're competing with a hundred people telling me they're competing with zero. And I'll probably feel really good because no one's talking to me and now someone's talking to me. So when I realized that, okay, so everyone who's famous or whatever, and they're being bombarded with people, there are people that they turn to for advice, for questions, for counsel, because it doesn't matter where you are, how much at the top you are, you have people you talk to, you have people you ask questions. And so I started always thinking, who are those people for the people I want to reach? Because when the time comes, they will turn to those people for advice. Hello all and welcome to the Steve My Marketing Podcast and we have Sachit Gupta on the show today and he's hands down the best super connector that I know of. He has sent thousands of cold emails to people that I admire and he has since been able to work with Seth Gordon, Tim Ferriss, Andrew Warner and he even connected with Mark Cuban once which is so cool. He also has his own podcast called The Conscious Creator Show which was the number 25 podcast in all of Apple Podcasts and the number one in entrepreneurship. His story is very well documented in the hundreds of interviews that he has given in other podcasts. But the reason why I want to bring him on Steam and Marketing was I wanted to explore his mindset and his exact strategies of how he was able to connect with all these interesting people. And this was a really fun interview. He shared how he was able to connect with Seth Gordon and how he reached out to Andrew Warner when he did not have any connections. And this beautiful story of him giving a letter to Tim Ferriss once. And then when he met him for the first time six months after that, uh, Tim Ferriss had brought that letter with him. He also asked him the exact email he is going to send to Chris Saka to connect with him in the next few weeks. And in the past eight years, he has hosted a number of poker nights. He has invited a number of people that he admires and has been able to connect with all those people through these poker nights. And I asked him how one could do that on Zoom now that we are on in lockdowns. And there is just so much more in this conversation about writing letters to people you admire or how you can become someone else's case study and then connect with them and things that he has learned working with all these amazing people, especially with Andrew, Seth and Tim. Like things that he had shared are not the ones that you see in a lot of Twitter threads. And uh, yeah, we also talked about podcasting, which is how I met him through the On Deck Podcasting Fellowship. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or two. And if you decide to write your own cold emails or DMs to people you admire, let me know how that worked out for you. And I've taken a ton of notes from this episode and a document that Sachit shared with uh, the podcasting fellowship that we were a part of. And that has helped me reach out to a ton of people that I would like to connect with. And if you want to go through my notes, just drop me an email to stealmymarketing at the rate gmail.com and enjoy this conversation.
I want to start with like your journey is very well documented in the tens of maybe even hundreds of interviews that you have given. You started from nowhere, and through cold emailing people, you were able to work with Andrew Warner from the Mixergy podcast. Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, and all these huge, huge names. And just two months back, you started leading the On Deck Podcasting Fellowship. And I was thinking about your cold emails. And then just this week, I saw this particular tweet from Lex Friedman, who is one of my favorite podcasters. And it reads, Hitler, Stalin, and Freud all lived in Vienna in 1913. And it's fascinating to think of how much of human history would have changed on just chance encounters among them. And I was thinking about this tweet and I was thinking about cold emails. And there is something about cold emails that goes against the tide, that goes against what was meant to be, or some might even say engineered serendipity. And so I want to know your thoughts on when you were 25 years old, you were cold emailing all these people. Who had taught you this? Or was that a book or a person? Or had you seen something like, what were your thoughts when you were reaching out to these people? Yeah. So, so first of all, thank you for having me. I've been really impressed with everything you've done for Steel, my marketing, and all all the the work that you've done on TikTok. So, I feel like I'm learning from the TikTok master myself. So, thank you for having me. In terms of cold emailing, that that's a great question. I think for me, it my mindset switched when I first read the Four Hour Work Week, where Tim basically talks about how one that you can reach anyone, and second. And this was, for me, this was like very non-intuitive. The people, let's say like if you think of like a hierarchy of people you want to reach, right? The people at the top, most people think they're unreachable, which is why most people don't reach out to them. So they're actually much easier to reach. And, and I think at that point, for me, when I realized like you could basically have a conversation with anyone, I was like, okay, let's try this. The first time that I put it into action was, so I'd read Tim Ferriss' book in college. And then I, a friend and I started the TEDx at Carnegie Mellon um, now 11 years ago. And that is sort of the, the thing that I did that influenced everything else I did afterwards. We wanted to reach all of these speakers like Jonathan Fields, Chris Gullip, Raghava Keke, who had just spoken at TED that year. And I think there was an element of fearlessness and probably being really naive, naive because we were just in college. So I just started reaching out to people. I remember one of the first emails I sent was Jonathan Fields. And I still remember this because we didn't even have a website for TEDx, CMU. I reached out to him. He replied asking for more information. And then a few hours later, because I was like, I don't know what information, I, I didn't know what to reply to him. So I was just waiting, putting together a reply. And he just replies back. He's like, fuck it, I'm in. And I think that moment changed it for me because I was like, this is someone whose books I've read, someone I'm really inspired by. I don't know him. I sent him type words into Gmail and send it to him. And he said, yes. And now he's coming to my college to speak at an event I'm doing. And I think for me, that just changed it. And it sort of, one, created this fearlessness, but two, created almost like a game. One of the, the ones, Colimas, I'm really proud of, it didn't lead to anything, but um, I think it was, this was around 2013. So I was probably 25 at that point. I, I used to love watching Shark Tank and... So one of the companies that Mark Cuban ended up investing in was called Ruminate. And I remember being really inspired by what they were trying to create. I remember going to their website and I was like, their website is not set up for marketing. So I basically created an email to Mark Cuban. I was like, thank you. Plus something around marketing or for Ruminate or something. And basically sent him a cold email being, hey, these are the three things that this company should improve in their marketing. I attached a video that was 30 minute long, minutes long and just sent it to him. And 
within an hour, he replied, just asking more questions. And so that just showed me the power of cold emailing. Wow. And it's fascinating to know that we are talking about hundreds of cold emails that you sent. Most of that did not work out, but you were literally spending a lot of your time going through their stuff and focusing on what might be the problem with them that I can help with it. What is your advice to somebody who might be doing that right now? Because like just through OnDeck, I met Brent Liang, who works with Justin Khan, the founder of Twitch. And I was able to meet someone who produces this weekend startup for Jason Calacanis and the guy who works for Dave Nemes, the founder of Bleacher Report. And like I met mm-hmm. maybe four or five people who have worked with all these big names. And every single one of them said that I didn't know this person. Like it was re- literally via a cold Twitter DM or a cold email. And so, yeah, if somebody who would want to replicate that, what are the best practices that you know now, maybe which you did not know, like when you were 25? Mm-hmm. So, so first of all, it's it's really amazing to hear you actually like put into action what we were teaching and meet all of these people and, and do a cold email. I think it's funny if I look back to when I first started sending these emails, they were pretty long. Some some of them were, I was just rambling and telling my whole life story being, I was born here and moved here and no one needs to know all of that, right? I have also done the stuff where I've just basically sent the same email to multiple people. I mean, I've probably sent thousands of cold emails between the automated stuff and all of that, just experimenting, including sending letters to people in the mail. We can talk about that. The advice I would give someone now, looking back to sort of things that I now know is one is the, the first thing is who are you targeting, right? Then what is your message? And then how are you sending it? In, the case, in this case, like you're sending it by email. So that's taken care of. So it's like, who is it and what are you saying? And the, the, I think the thing that most people don't do is put themselves in the shoes of the pe- person they're trying to contact. So for example, let's say you're trying to reach Chris Saka for, for an interview, right? And I'm saying this because it's something I've been thinking about how to do for a while. So it'll be interesting to see if once I send this, how it works out. Those people are usually really busy, right? They probably get hundreds of emails a day or, or probably more than that. They might have someone else who's monitoring their email. So sometimes when I'm actually sending an email, there's probably a gatekeeper monitoring the inbox. How do I get past that? So the first thing that like that you need to do is really put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're trying to email, right? So let's say you want to reach Chris Saka, who is an investor, billionaire, all of that. Start thinking about what is his life like. So for example, for him, I'm thinking he's probably someone who's got who's really busy. He gets hundreds of emails or maybe thousands of emails a day. He might have someone monitoring the email, his email. He's got a family and kids. And so he's just really busy, right? So how do you in a sea of thousands of emails? stand out from everyone else. So that's the first thing. The second thing people don't think of is the context of when someone is reading an email. So so, so let me ask you, where, when or where do you read most of your email? On my phone. And it's for me, it's basically random, but I work nine to five. So 90% of the time, I won't open my emails between nine to five. So it's more after 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Yeah. So, so, so in your case, you're maybe about to have dinner for some people yeah. they are walking to meetings or sitting in a cab or, or Uber, not, not really now because people aren't really moving around, but before, all right, like sometimes someone's sitting on the toilet and scrolling on their email. Let's be real. That's what people do. So because of that, the other thing that most people don't do is keep them really short, right? So with those sort of tips, the thing I try and do with an email is make one point, always answer the question, what's in it for me, for the other person have one call to action and just make it really easy for them to reply. 
So, so I'll give you an example of a type of email to send someone. They're trying to build a relationship with maybe your content. The first kind of emails that a lot of people get send and I, I've gotten is, and I've also sent those is, hi, name. I really liked your book. I'm a big fan. Here's my life story. And then it's three paragraphs later. It's a really vague question of what should I do about this? And the person's just nah, like, I, I don't have time to respond to this, right? And then you push it for a day and three days and blah, blah, blah. And then it just never gets replied. Another contrast is, hey, person, I really like your book. Based on your book, here are two things I already did, right? So you're already showing them that you're t- you've taken action. So you've separated yourself from everyone else. Then you say, I'm struggling with maybe one thing. This is the problem. Here's three things I've already tried. So you're telling them that you've already taken some action instead of just like, what should I do? So here's three things I've already tried. Here are two options I'm considering, A or B. Do you have any recommendations of which one I should consider or something I'm missing? And the person can just literally reply, do option B. So, so do you see like the difference? I've, I've made it much easier for the person to reply in the second second chance than the first one. So, so I always like try and do that because that starts building a relationship. Wow, this is super interesting. And then after sending all these emails, you were able to contact Andrew Warner. And I guess one of your first ideas was that he was already doing the Mixergy podcast, which was one of the biggest shows in Silicon Valley and among entrepreneurs. And you said that, I guess Mixergy should go to schools and teach young kids about entrepreneurship. And I don't know if you were able to do that, but do you still think it is a good idea? Because I was reading about Morning Brew newsletter and they did exactly this. They would go to colleges and they got their first maybe 10,000 subscribers from college students. So somebody starting in podcasting, they're trying to do something different with their podcast. Is that a good idea to go to colleges and sort of get students interested into this? Yeah. And this was almost 10 years ago. And I think it's even better idea now because sort of the entrepreneurship and the hustle culture has now permeated a younger generation in colleges. So yes, I think that's a great idea. I'll, can I also answer another question that you didn't ask in this? Obviously. Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. So the, the other thing that was, the, the it's really interesting that you brought that email up. The thing that I think I did also differently that ended up helping me end up working with Andrew Warner is so now let, let, let's apply this, the cold email part to like you wanting to work with someone, right? So most people, when let's say like there's an influencer they want to work with, they'll email the influencer and be like, hey, big fan of whatever, my whole life story, I want to work with you, what can I do, right? And again, the person's like, I don't know what you can do for me because they're so into their work. So what I did with Andrew Warner was I spent a long time first just being a fan, listening to his stuff and researching his everything he was doing. And then when I first emailed him, I basically had this line, which was, I can help you execute on ideas that you already have, or I can help you come up with new ideas because I was giving him an out of being, Hey, these are the things I want done, do this, or I don't know what you should do, come up with things to do. Right. And so in our first call, basically after our conversation, I came to him with these are three specific things that you should do as strategies that I can help you implement that Mixergy isn't currently doing. So, so the, the thing that I did differently, again, is I came to the table with ideas that I already had that I could execute by myself instead of asking him, what should I do? Right. And I guess in one of your interviews, or maybe I heard this somewhere that you would actually monitor Andrew's Twitter to look for opportunities of things that he needed help with. So one of my favorite lines is if I'm trying to have someone become a client of mine, it is my business to know everything about their business. 
in some cases, better than they know their business because I'm bringing in an outside perspective. And if I can learn everything that they know, then you, you combine that and you can actually sometimes like know more about their business. So what I would always do when I wanted some, someone to become a client is I would read anything that was public. I was reading all of their Twitter history, people they were replying to, what other people were saying about them. In some cases, I remember back in the day and, and still now, but it's just not as popular. People will have comments on their blog and sometimes respond to the blog comments, right? So what I could do then in the first meeting, sometimes just basically offhand drop, hey, yeah, like this is really cool. I actually remember in this article, you were on, on the comments, you replied to this person and said this, and I completely agree. And the person across from me is just going, how the hell does this person know about a blog comment I replied to, right? And that just tells you just it's indication that I've done my research and I know what I'm talking about. Because here's the number one rule of marketing, right? No one cares about you. What people are trying to understand is how can you help them? One of my mentors, Rajesh, has this really great line. He's like, how can you make yourself a possibility in the future someone sees for themselves? So, so if someone's like, hey, this is what I want to be in five years, you become part of that possibility right? And that just comes from like helping and giving and then preparing. There's this really great video. I don't know if you've seen, I think it's a basketball or a football coach where he's talking about his team has lost. And the reporter asked, what are you going to do? He's like, we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to trust the process. We're going to wake up. We're going to go to our class, sit in the front, take our test, get good grades, go back, sleep. And those simple things that compound and over time. And I think if you're trying to build a relationship with someone, if you're trying to work with someone, if you're trying to work with company, with the company, how do you stand out? You can stand out by just doing more preparation and knowing more about the other person than anyone else. All of this stuff is available on Google. All of the stuff is available on Twitter. Everyone's doing podcasts now. And if you're not putting in the work to understand all of that, what are you doing? And I guess I haven't ever heard you talk about your mentor, Rajesh. He's started multiple companies. I think over 12 now, he's written multiple books, 14 or 16 we met at a creative live workshop that was being done by Josh Kaufman, who wrote personal MBA. And the, the thing that I admire the most about Raj is his willingness to learn. He's probably one of the most connected people in Silicon Valley with like a lot of investors and stuff, has started all of these companies, written all these books, but he was there at that workshop learning alongside and taking notes and asking questions. And we just met, we just sort of like hit it off, met for coffee in San Fran near San Francisco, and actually a similar thing where he was working on a project and I was like, hey, I think you need a website for this book. Let me help you build a website. It took way longer than expected. He was <laughs> gracious throughout and it just created a friendship that's now almost 10 years. Wow. I think there's another mindset that I have around building relationships and cold emailing. I think a lot of people, when they look at these things, they're trying to get something from the other person now, the next day. Hey, can I get this? The way I'm approaching this is I want to build a relationship with someone over the next five, 10 years. And then when you think of that long-term timeline, you can actually start by giving. Another sort of mentor of mine who's really great at building relationships, he actually has this interesting thing where he like doesn't really ask people for anything. He's just always giving, giving. And people will say to him, dude, what's the shtick? What's going on? Because you haven't asked for anything. And it, because people are so not used to that. And You've worked with all these people, Tim Ferriss, Seth Gordon, Andrew. If you had to take one framework or one habit from each of them, what would those be? From Andrew, it is the combination of the way he sort of builds relationship and has created trust with the people that he interviews. I remember one of my first times working with Andrew, like first few weeks where we were working in the office together, 
he was about to interview someone and then got them on a call and in less blunt words told them that their company was not big enough for mixergy and right away the person's like what do you need to see pulled out all of his bank records paypal whatever you want to see right and i just sit there sat there going why is he sharing all of this information but it was because he had built so much trust in in the startup ecosystem that people trusted him with so much information and i i saw the importance of that there's a really great quote from warren buffett which is it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and then takes seconds to ruin it and I always think about that in terms of trust from tim ferris i think the the biggest thing i learned was probably ambition and skill i started working with tim ferris in 2015 and i remember when i met him then it was the guy that wrote the for our work week i read that book and he's so well known and i just remember being sort of completely wowed where in our first meeting the sort of conversation was okay if you if this exists how do we 10x this how do we 100x this right and i was just like oh him and his team think on a completely different level and and that's what i was able to learn from working with him and it's really interesting where if you actually look now compared to 5 years ago i would bet most people know tim from his podcast and think the four hour quick as another side thing he maybe did 10 years ago but like the podcast is the main thing and then from seth godin i think the biggest thing i learned is this combination of noticing things and storytelling seth has this really amazing way where he'll never tell you you're wrong on something but he'll just share stories that will offer you a different perspective and help you come to the conclusion that what you're doing is completely wrong and it's done in the most kind and gracious way and and that's something that i i hope to keep exemplifying amazing and your comment about creators brings me to the other question which nancy had said that you're very passionate about creators making a living but also being true to their art and what they are creating and the very nature of trying to make a living through your art you, you have to build an audience in some way and when you have built an audience you have to cater to them in some way and so what do you think about this tension of creating something for the audience and at the same time doing something what you truly love i think one starts to build an audience when one gives up the need to build an audience and this is a very sort of like philosophical thing what you chase after is not what you attract something i realized is like there's always this sort of like moment of resignation or resignation where you stop caring and you just start being who you are and that's when the audience actually comes if that makes sense so wow. so the te- between that tension is is really interesting because from the marketing side whenever i'm working on a project i'm really putting myself in the minds of the person who it's for just completely becoming like that what do they eat where do they like go for work what do they read it's almost as as if a method actor is preparing for a role but at some point you have to completely let that go you have to almost prepare so much they can just play afterwards this is really great article actually by riz ahmed he he's plays a drummer in this new movie called sound of metal and he talks about how he basically over prepared to the point of his director telling him no you cannot watch the dailies which is basically like seeing everything he did that day because he would watch it and what can i do better blah 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 right and so his director was basically like, you can't do that because you're just over preparing so i think there's a mix of really knowing about it but then letting go and then just trusting where you are wow and when you were starting the conscious creator show i guess you were learning from all the great late night hosts and so you were listening to all these interviews 
one of the things that you learned about interviewing people that is not common knowledge that most podcasters do wrong early in their journey there's a really amazing line that i'm going to sort of butcher but i think i'll, I'll hopefully keep the message from sonal who runs the a16z podcast conversations that are casual and intimate are functions of production not editing so i think the thing that most podcasters get wrong especially for an interview show is most of the time there's a lot of prep that goes into making what on the other side becomes a great conversation so in your case we had a conversation before you saw me present in odp you used one of my methods and used it against me and did research with all of these <laughs> other people that i don't know what they told you and because of all of the work that you've done there you're able to ask questions where i'm literally like wait let me actually think about this and that's the best thing that you can get as an interviewer is making the person you're interviewing think and i think that's the thing that most people get wrong they think that this is just like you get a guest and you show up and you just start talking and then you just ask the same 10 questions over and over again because you can see that when when the guest if you do that there are guests who will go i guess it's that kind of interview and then they just completely check out because they're just saying the same thing over and over again so the thing that i think like most people get wrong is the amount of preparation it actually takes to make a great conversation that doesn't sound scripted yeah this is something that i learned from ondik because i would listen to joe rogan and when you listen to like joe rogan it's like oh this guy is having a very casual conversation so i must do that and then when you listen to your recording it turns out really boring and then going through odp and learning through all these people you realize that there is so much into the art of interviewing people you and joe rogan though right i think there's few things one from at least from what i know from talking to friends who've maybe been interviewed by him or no people on his team there's a tremendous amount of research that goes into it and then i think the other thing is and this is again if you look at any sort of craftsman there's a point where they don't need that work anymore right like because they can sort of like rely on instinct it's really interesting if you go check out interviews that joe rogan did maybe 8 years ago to now and see the difference in his conversation it's fascinating right yeah and i guess andrew and i have this question from so many people everybody is so interested in why you are in hawaii just because it, i was able to a friend of mine found a house here it's warm it's nice it's sunny it's near the beach and i needed a place to quarantine there's nothing major about it it was your document on connecting with influencers that is probably one of the best say books or written material that i've ever read and i guess you know that because i've shared it so many times on twitter with other people and i would really love to go through that and dissect that the parts which i really find interesting and i guess that will be helpful to the audience to get to know the mindset and some of the strategies that you used to sort of because that ebook is a combination of your 8 years of experience doing this day in and day out so one of the things i wanted to ask about and this is something that you wrote in that document as well which was like what do you give if you have nothing and this is when you did not know anyone and you introduced chris gulabu to randy warner and he came on the podcast and that is one thing or you could reach out to people just building touch points of saying yeah i love this book i would really like to thank you about that or maybe taking advice from people and applying them so i would love to hear maybe more examples so your thoughts on how does somebody who is right out of college they don't have any connections how do they reach out to people and start building a relationship i think especially if you're right out of college the biggest thing you can do uh, is one become a student really absorbs people people's materials actually take action with it not just read a book apply it and change something in your life and let them know because i'm telling you the number of people who actually 
do all of those things together is so minuscule that if you have a hundred authors that you want to connect with, if all you do is read their books, apply it, send them a thank you email with what you did, how you applied it. One question, just one question, not like a rambling email. Like I used to send one question and then take the, what they tell you for that one question then apply it and then reply to them in two or three weeks and close that loop. And then we look at now I applied this. If you just do that for a hundred people, your life will completely change because most people don't do that. Right. And I guess, let me know if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. This is guy, Chris Hohen, who you got in contact with. And then you would write him emails about like what you are doing. And I guess there were a few people you would sort of, you did not know them personally, but you would write emails, just giving the updates on what you are doing. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that is such a good strategy where you are not only just reaching out to them and building one touch point, but you are, you have this open door to build multiple touch points. And I've doing I've been doing that with Derek Cybers for the past couple of years. So every six months down the line, I write him an email about what I'm doing. And he's like, he's so such a nice person. He always replies, but that is such an awesome thing to be in touch with somebody who's so successful. Yeah. So, so that book is Recession Proof Graduate by Charlie Hohn. And, and basically, I really appreciate all the compliments you said about that doc, but most of that doc is based off probably what I learned from Charlie's ebook. So go read that as a source also. But yeah, with, with Charlie, I think what I was doing, and if I go back to when I was in college and like go back to who I was then, I think what I was struggling with is this one path that was in front of me, which is go get a job at a big company and like either go into banking or consulting and all of these things. And versus I was so fascinated by this new world of authors, Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin and all of these people. And I didn't actually even think it was a possibility that you could work with someone like that. And then I remember Charlie wrote a blog post on Ramit Sethi's blog, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, about basically how he used this concept of free work to work with Ramit Sethi and then Tim Ferriss and all these other people. And I was like, you can do that? Like, that's a job that you can get. And so for me, as soon as I saw that, I was like, going to cold email him, right? Because I knew cold emailing. So I cold emailed him and I just asked him a few questions. I think I invited him to the TEDx. If not that one, he ended up speaking at the next one the next year. And just start asking him questions. And I think the thing that I did was whenever I would send him an update, it would be in the context of his book. So, hey, you talk about free work and building these assets. I just started this conference called TEDxCMU. It's taking up all my time. I'm in this master's program. I'm thinking of dropping out. Should I do the master's program or should I keep doing this conference? I remember that was one of the emails I sent him and he didn't reply and then I replied and I just ended up dropping out of the masters and I replied to him, to him and like, then he replied to that being, oh yeah, you made the right decision kind of thing. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I started working with Andrew Warner. I was like, hey, Charlie, another case study for you. I used your email and I emailed all of these people and Andrew Warner said yes. And now I'm working with them. And in some cases, damn, I didn't think I emailed that person. So it was just really in, in the context of, again, what's in it for him? I've read your book. This is how I've used it. Six months later, it didn't work. Six months later, it did work. This person, it worked. So that's what I was doing there. Kind of what you're doing with Derek. No, but this is such a good advice to bring his book into the context because my emails are just random things about what I'm doing with my life. And he still replies. But I guess, yeah, that is such a good advice to bring their book and give them case studies. One of the things you could do is, hey, Derek, I read your book on your music or your people. Here are three things from that book that I learned that I'm now applying to the podcast. And then three months later, I applied those three things. Here's what happened. All came from your book. 
Wow. This is crazy. This is such a good advice. And yeah, you mentioned this particular book called Mastermind Dinners by Jason Gennard. And so you started hosting Poker Nights for Andrew and you were the person who was organizing everything. Somebody who has never hosted dinners for all these people, how do you structure those dinners? How many people do you invite? And how do you set the context for those dinners? Yeah. So, so let's talk about poker nights before dinners, and then we can talk about dinners too, because sure. yeah. this is now a blast from the past. This was so long ago. The way that started was when I was in San Francisco, I was working with Andrew on Mixergy and I would go to all these events, startup school in, in Mountain View and all of these different things. And I was living at home with my parents at that point, because I wasn't really making that much money in Dublin, California, which for context is about 45 minutes train ride outside of San Francisco. So I was living completely outside of San Francisco. And so Andrew was basically like, you're meeting all these people. You should have an event, bring them together so that you can keep meeting them. And I just looked at him, dude, you're crazy. I live 45 minutes away. No one's going to come there. What do I do? He's like, host a poker night. We should host a poker night. If you do all the work, you can use my house. I was done. And the funny thing is before that, I don't think I've ever, I'd ever played poker. Because I was still outside of the table and look up rules. Oh, this is what you do. And so that just kind of gave me Think, so Andrew basically gave me the idea of a thing to host and a location. And then um, I'm pretty sure I probably Googled how to host a poker night, <laughs> ordered, ordered the poker chips and cards and like had to like learn, figure out like, how to deal and stuff. We probably need snacks. So we like, went and bought chips. We, Andrew used to host scotch nights, so we probably need scotch and drinks. So we bought a few bottles and then that was it. And then for the first one, just I invited a mix of people I had maybe met at events, some of his friends. And then people I had wanted to meet. So that was one thing that I changed was instead of going to someone now and being like, hey, can I go on a call and pick your brain? My email would be, hey, I'm hosting this exclusive poker night with Andrew Warner, who you probably want to get on his podcast, exclusive invite, do you want to come? And, and people would say yes. So, so here, here's some of the things that we learned though, is eight is a good number. Eight is the magic number because if you go above eight to 10 people, then you have to split the group into two different groups and do two different tables. So we'd mm. keep it at eight. And there was one time where I think two or three people didn't show up. And so now we have a poker game of four people, which is not really fun. So then what we started doing is we basically started making people pay before they came. So like in poker, okay. you have blinds, right? So our blinds were really easy. It was like $10 or $15 because we, we weren't trying to do this to make money. I would make an event where people would, would pay $10 to reserve their spot. Because what we found is even if someone has paid even 5 or $10, they're way less likely to cancel. And so that's what we started doing. And then I would start connecting people from different poker nights. One of the things we wanted to do was an event for the past 10 poker nights. We never ended up doing it. But really the idea was just small groups, bring people together, do something that's not about work. Because I think, I'm pretty sure we had a rule where at least at the start, you couldn't talk about what you did for work, but it would gradually organically happen. And then you see how people became friends. So it was approaching people as friends instead of putting them on a pedestal and someone I'm trying to learn from. Mm. When I do these dinners, the thing I'm looking for, and it's really weird, is are they good people? Is this someone I want to build a relationship with over 10 years? Because one thing I realized now, I've had 10 years in my career, is people's careers change. They change industries. They change jobs. They change what they're interested in, what they're passionate about. But are they good people? So I always kind of look for that as a central thing. Wow. And now that we have had COVID, if you had to do something like this on Zoom, maybe invite three or four people in a call, how would you structure that? I will actually give you a really great example. My friend, Chris, he runs the same thing called the 747 Club and the website's 747club.org. And basically it's a dinner that starts at 747 
I forget what the the reason for that was. And basically it's like centered around gratitude. And I actually attended one of them last year. It was more than a hundred people. He's done these with 200 plus people. And the way he starts is he puts people into breakout rooms with a central question that's around gratitude. Then he'll bring people back in. Then he'll send people back into breakout rooms and ask different questions. And it is one of the most magical things I attended. So I think with COVID and everyone being home, which is about to change soon, it actually creates an opportunity to cast the net completely wide instead of just where you're located. Obviously, there's something different about in-person that you will miss over Zoom, right? If we were having this in person, it would be completely different. You can't change that, but it also opens you up to way more people being online. Right. And you're right that when you're meeting someone in a conference, I share my story in a way that is memorable to them. Can you share your technique? How do you structure your story in a way that is memorable to the other people because in a conference you're meeting tons of people i don't think i have a specific technique in the way i tell a story and i think partly it is because i've studied so much marketing that it's probably just absorbed in and have come up with something on my own but a few books i can recommend is one is influenced by roberts cialdini so whenever i'm telling a story or pitching a client or whatever i always try and hit those points of like reciprocity social proof scarcity and the other, the other ones that he mentions. And another book I'm going through right now is called Storyworthy. Yeah, I actually don't think I'm that good of a storyteller yet. So it's interesting that you asked that question. And the, and the other thing that you write is the kings turn to their generals for advice. So how do you use that to your strategic advantage? Yes, this is, this is a great point. One, I'm glad you mentioned this one. This is something I noticed when I went to conferences. If, if you look at a conference, there's always this moment where someone who's really well-known is speaking and they stop speaking. And then basically everyone gets up and goes to talk to them. And it's something I noticed was before the person came on to speak, they were usually with one to three people that were probably from their team or someone they respect. And you could tell they had a close relationship because you can tell by body language. And then when everyone rushes that person, the other person's just standing off to that side and no one's talking to them. Wow. Right? A, a great example actually would be, I remember going to a conference with Andrew Warner and or we were at the same conference and he spoke and then everyone rushed him. And I was just like, kind of like standing off to the side and stuff and not doing anything. And if people came and talked to me, they probably have a stronger end to get to Andrew than just by pitching him directly because there's a, there they're competing with a hundred people telling me they're competing with zero and I'll probably feel really good because no one's talking to me and now someone's talking to me. So when I realized that, okay, so everyone who's like famous or whatever, and they're being bombarded with people, there are people that they turn to for advice, for questions, for counsel, because it doesn't matter where you are, how much at the top you are, you have people you talk to, you have people you ask questions. And so I started always thinking, who are those people for the people I want to reach? Because when the time comes, they will turn to those people for advice. And, and part of this also happened organically where we, we talked about Charlie Hoon. I read his book and I always kept him updated and kept him updated. And then like did this over five years. And I think what happened was at some point, Tim was looking for someone like Charlie because Charlie had worked with Tim. And then basically again, like, yeah, I want to hire someone like you. Who do you recommend? And I was one of the people that Charlie recommended, which is actually how I ended up working with Tim Ferriss. It wasn't any cold email technique. It wasn't any fancy technique. It was because someone I had built a relationship with over five years that Tim trusted, he turned to him and asked who he should reach out to. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when you met Tim, you had written a letter to him maybe a few years back and he brought that with him. So I guess, and you also mentioned something about writing letters that we haven't gone mm -hmm. deep into. So can you talk about that 
Yeah. So, so that was actually six months ago um, at an event. It's funny that Andrew did. One of the things, again, I've touched a lot about just saying thank you to people. And it really is a strategy, which is to start with gratitude. Because again, if you're creating stuff, if you're putting content out, content out into the world, it is kind of lonely. I'm, I'm sure you deal with that, where you put out all of these podcasts and videos and you're like, who's listening? I don't know. Like, is this actually making an impact? So right. I made it a point to start just, if there is something that I like that someone has done, I will make it a point to say thank you. I'll actually, let me read one to you. There's a journalist who's been writing about stuff in the influencer space recently and probably is getting a lot of shitty comments because of the stuff that she's writing about. And I just sent her this message. I'm like, hi, Kat, on your recent tweet, just wanted to say you've done an incredible job on your recent reporting, especially the X story. As someone who works with creators and influencers, thank you for keeping the industry honest. I'm not asking her for anything. I'm just really appreciating what she's doing. And I will just DM people with this kind of stuff all day. And in the case of Tim, his book had had all of this impact on me. And he was speaking at an event that Andrew was doing. So I basically, and it took me a week to just compose this letter. Like, what do I want to say? What do I want to say? Oh, I should mention this quote that I read in a book um, and what his book meant to me and how his book helped me choose my own path. And so I wrote this letter and right before the event, I still remember, went to the mall, got a nice journal and got it wrapped. And I connected the quote that I used to Tim's journey because he was about to start a TV show. And then part of the journal was, hey, hopefully this journal helps you as you explore your new journey. And so he was speaking at the event. And I remember I showed up to the event and I started like mapping all the exits because because Tim's probably going to speak and just leave. And so I, first, I think I was sitting in the front and then there was a break. And then I moved to the back because if he exits, then he's going to walk to the elevator so I can exit off the back and then I meet him in the hallway because I don't want to do this in front of everyone. And so Tim's speaking, he stops speaking and he just stays, stays there. I was like, what? I thought you were going to leave. So I quickly <laughs> rush before everyone rushes him. And I go up to him and I'm like, hey, I, I don't have any questions. And I was really nervous when I said this. I don't have any questions. I just, your book has had all this impact on me. And I just want to say thank you. And I basically gave him that card and the journal wrapped. And I said, thank you. I gave it to him. I don't even remember what happened. It's honestly a blur in my head still. And I just walked away. And I think, and that was it. I think I'd written my uh, Twitter handle on that note. Just in hopes of maybe Tim will go home and reply to me on Twitter. It happened. But then we got connected six months later through Charlie. And then we had a call and we had a first meeting. And then when we got to the meeting before, and, and Tim literally said, he's like, before we get started, I want to show you something. And he pulled out that letter from his bag. And he's like, I still have this. And wow. again, that just goes to show the power of gratitude because Tim's probably someone who gets so many messages, so many thank yous. But the fact that he kept that means something. Yeah, and, and it also some... shows that like it meant something to him to get that from me. Another tip on these thank you letters, by the way, is from Steven Sisler, who's the guy who can basically reach everyone. What he does is, let's say he's staying at a hotel. Let's say he's staying at the Four Seasons. And you can actually, you don't even have to stay there. You just go and ask them. He'll basically go there and be like, can I get letters and stationery from you? So he'll basically get letters and envelopes from the Four Seasons. He'll just go down the list. Hey, Elton. Or, hey, X person, staying at the Four Seasons, I was thinking of you, sign. And he just sends those letters. And he's someone who actually does this on a much bigger scale than I. And so you can do this. You can go to your... If people only do one thing from this, watch, listen to this podcast, go to the fanciest hotel near you, ask them for 10 letters, sit and write 10 thank you letters that people like you really appreciate, send them in the mail and come back and tell us what happened because it will change your life. Amazing. And 
this is from a tweet that Andrew wrote, but you co-tweeted that. And this is the, this particular advice to young podcasters where he said partner with other websites. And I guess Andrew did it with Mashable where we interviewed Tim Ferriss and other people and he partnered it with Mashable. So as a young podcaster, how do you do that? How do you reach out to these big names and what do you pitch to them? I haven't done this successfully yet, but I'll share how I would consider doing this. The first thing I would do is make a list of all the publications that I want to partner with. So let's say entrepreneur, Mashable, blah, 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 blah. And then if I'm interviewing someone they've already sort of featured, you can actually just search site entrepreneur Tim Ferriss and you'll find all the people that have written about that person already. And then find their email and then basically be, hey, I'm creating this content. This could be additive to what you're doing. Can I turn this into an article and publish on your site? Nice. Because the thing you have to understand is all of these publications what they want is content because content drives page views, which drives the rev ad revenue and all of their economics. So if you can come to them and just offer them content that's already good, already been created, they don't have to do any work, they'll say yes. That's another thing actually in terms of strategies, just make it easy for people to say yes. Yeah. And this is my last question, but if you have anything else to say that I may not have covered that you might want to share with the audience, feel free to do that. If you have any advice for people listening to this podcast, what is the best advice that you can give to somebody who is very early in their podcasting journey, probably even interviewing people, what should they do to be successful in this journey? So I'll give the advice that I'm right now giving to myself is when you start in any creative medium podcasting, or maybe wanting to build a following on Instagram and all of these things, I think there's just something insidious that's happened over the last 10 years where basically all these things, building an audience, getting followers was a tool to achieve a certain goal. I want to build an audience because then I want to use the audience to promote ocean conservation or cause some kind of change. What we have now reached is a point where the tool has become the goal. People don't say, I want to build an audience because I want to create this outcome with the audience. I just want to build an audience. I just want to be famous. And then if you go ask them, why do you want to be famous? What do you want to be do with the fame? People don't have an answer. And here's the thing. Fame isn't where it's all made out to be. There's a really great quote from Naval. I'd rather be rich and anonymous than rich and famous or than poor and famous. Because one fame is a box that once you open, it's really hard to close. So I think that's the first advice is really understand why you're doing something and what is the change that you're trying to create. And the second thing is, Whenever you start on this journey, there's all these like external markers that you're looking at, like followers, number of downloads, subscribers, all these things. And there's actually a really great case study from uh, a photographer who was publishing on Instagram. And he basically realized where if he used a certain filter, the number of likes he would get became two or three times. You just have to use that filter. So he started doing that. But at some point he was like, this is actually changing my art. And and so, so there's this almost a shift that happens is you start out by having this chase where you're going for likes and all of these things. And at some point you realize that chase is empty and what matters more is the craft of what you're doing. And so you make that switch from the chase to the craft. 